My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. This will not be a campaign of half measures, and we will accept no outcome but victory. We will defend our freedom. We will bring freedom to others, and we will prevail. May God bless our country and all who defend her. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we do not know we don't know. Saddam Hussein is very much focused on putting in place the key missing piece from his nuclear weapons program, the ability to produce fissile material. Ambition and hatred are enough to bring Iraq and Al-Qaeda together, enough so Al-Qaeda could learn how to build more sophisticated bombs and learn how to forge documents, and enough so that Al-Qaeda could turn to Iraq for help in acquiring expertise on weapons of mass destruction. I reiterate that Iraq doesn't have weapons of mass destruction, and those who have accused us of having weapons of mass destruction have failed to provide any convincing material evidence. But they are still using those accusations as a pretext to wage a war of aggression against Iraq. My fellow Americans, major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. Brian, what did what did the individual say? What did Saddam Hussein say when he uh, surrendered? Uh, sir, he said that uh, I'm uh, Saddam. He said that I'm Saddam Hussein. Um, I am the president of Iraq, and I'm willing to negotiate. And then the response from uh, U.S. soldiers was uh, President Bush sends his regards. The situation in Iraq is unacceptable to the American people, and it is unacceptable to me. Our troops in Iraq have fought bravely. They have done everything we have asked them to do. Where mistakes have been made, the responsibility rests with me. Between the Gulf War and the fateful events of September 11, an undercurrent of ideas simmered beneath the surface. These ideas would eventually mold the path to war. Guided by a leaked document, the Defense Planning Guidance, commissioned by the Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, and overseen by Paul Wolfowitz, it revealed America's post-Cold War strategy, where dominance and preeminence were paramount. As the defense planning guidance emphasized the importance of American dominance, a philosophical divide emerged between George H.W. Bush, a realist who sought to preserve the balance of power, while a rising current challenged the status quo. Advocates of this alternative perspective believed in an assertive and interventionist American role, promoting human rights and democracy abroad a doctrine that emphasized the preemptive war. Over time, this alternative current gained prominence, 
shaping the Republican Party and paving the way for the Bush Doctrine, a doctrine that emphasized preemptive war and the use of military force to counter perceived threats. And so the Iraq War became the crucible where these ideas collided, leaving a trail of consequences that reverberate to this day. Beyond the realm of politics, the Iraq War shattered America's global reputation, triggered unprecedented opposition, and led to the unintended geopolitical consequences that we see. It also transformed public opinion within the United States, fostering disillusionment and fueling a generation of opposition to the status quo and to the military. On today's episode of A Conversation Before the World Ends, join us as we navigate the twists and turns of this monumentous moment in time that changed the world forever. Welcome to today's episode, guys. I'm your host, Kareem. And I'm Eamon. And welcome back. It's been a long time delayed, but uh, lately we've been currently moving to a new house, trying to set that up. Um, It's been a really busy month, but yeah, everything is settled now. Yeah. Back Uh, at it. Yeah, so this kind of took longer than expected. But here we are, the final chapter of the Iraq war or what led to the history of the Iraq war and in today's episode aim today we'll cover like matrix four yeah (laughs) it's just long overdue yes so on today's episode we're going to tackle all the steps that America has taken since um the 90 or like where we dropped off 2000 leading to the Iraq war we won't cover the Iraq war per se I think um um, we just want to cover, I think, more importantly, the steps taken uh, to launch this war and what would be the impact from that day Bush announced the bombing over Baghdad. If that's cool, let's start. Let's go for it. Okay, so where we started, where we stopped was the millennium, right? Yeah. Now, in the summer of 2001, as the world continued its fight against the shadows of the Cold War, A storm was brewing on the horizon. George Bush had just assumed office, right? His administration... summer of 2000. Yeah. yeah. You said 2001. No, I know. But like, I'm starting it in 2001. So we start off from the summer of 2001, a few months before. Uh, George Bush had just assumed office. His administration were uh, preoccupied with traditional threats and military supremacy, right? Like we mentioned in the cold open, they're the old school Republican... uh, Oh, no, sorry, the new school of Republicans who wanted to ensure American dominance, right? Little did they know the dangers poised by non-state actors and unconventional warfare were quietly evolving since the 90s. And it took a catastrophic event to shake the foundation of this understanding. But before that pivotal moment, uh, let's talk about a person named Randy Larson, a national security expert armed with the knowledge and determination, right? His mission was to awaken politicians to the grave reality of a, of a terrorist group cell and the threat of the bioterrorism they posed. They were called Al-Qaeda. Uh, he was the 
the one who kept warning, right? Yeah. Larson had a plan. An audacious plan to ignite awareness and preparedness, right? He orchestrated something called Operation Dark Winter. A simulated bioterrorism outbreak. An immersive experience designed to jolt the political elite out of their complacency. Yeah. One of the key figures in that room was someone called Senator John Warner. He had he had uh, scheduled just ten minutes for the briefing, eager to like leave for a, for a vacation right after. Right, so he's like, okay, you can show me a simulated bioterrorism threat, and I'll just bounce right. Yeah. Uh, little did you know, those ten minutes would turn everything around. So he seized the opportunity. He presented a fabricated news clip reporting about smallpox symptoms spreading across the United States. The gravity of the situation became powerful. Right, the catastrophic potential of bioterrorism was laid before the eye before their eyes. Uh, Senator Warner, initially indifferent, found himself drawn deeper into the presentation. Curiosity sparked questions, and genuine concern etched on his face. Ninety minutes later, he left the briefing room forever changed. Warner described it as the most alarming presentation he had ever witnessed, the threat that had gripped him. He began to understand that there was a new threat of bioterrorism. Must have been a really good presentation. Yeah. Uh, this encounter would shape his actions and his influences during his tenure, right? on September 11th, 2001. We're just getting reports in now that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. This attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon shattered the nation's sense of security and forever altered the course of history. We're still reeling from it, you could say. Yeah. Now, like we said before, 9-11 we won't cover deeply because that's an episode unto itself. Um, And I want to really focus on 9-11. I want to focus on Al-Qaeda and all that. Yeah. So today it's just an, so we'll just mention it as much as we can that in relation. I think to, a lot of people who were uh, alive and conscious then can all pinpoint where they were when 9/11 happened. Yeah, it's one it, of those moments. It's like where were you when Kennedy got shot back in for the yeah. 60s? It's that for us. So after 9/11, Randy Larson now recognized an authority in national security was invited back to the White House. Vice President Dick Cheney and other high-ranking officials gathered as Larson delivered his chilling presentation again. So at that point, they're like, okay, now show us what you wanted, the bioterrorism thing. Because then people thought maybe Al-Qaeda will do a bio-warfare afterwards. Cheney, a man known for his unwavering resolve, posed the question that cut to the core. What does a biological weapon look like? Larson, armed with conviction and and a vial containing weaponized BGI revealed the stark reality of the biological weapon, a tangible embodiment of fear, destruction, unseen parallel, right? As the American public grappled with the aftermath of 9-11 and the specter of bioterrorism, public officials began sounding the alarm. Attorney General John Ashcroft stepped forward, urging vigilance and cautions, highlighting the FBI's nationwide alert about potential attacks using crop-dusting aircraft to decimate chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction. And it's also during that era where a lot of movies, main villain had biochemical. Yeah, yeah, that was the start of it. Catastrophic stuff. That was always the threat in movies. <laughs> yeah. See yeah. Um, so on the t- September, on September 27th, the New York Times reported that people were heeding the advice of experts and recognizing the need to be prepared for, for another bio attack, right? Attorney General Ashcroft reiterated the seriousness of the situation, declaring that anyone attempting to infect others with anthrax would be considered guilty of an act of terror. Um, it's a r- really good band, though. 
Yeah, like so we mentioned, there was an anthrax attack that happened shortly after. And it became clear that, okay, shit, so now bioterrorism is an actual thing. thing. I don't know if you remember when SVE used to have these episodes where like uh, kid, people would be infected by these bioter- biochemicals that were yeah. sent in mail and it would... what Anthrax by mail, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And wasn't there rumors that the Chinese are doing it? Lately? Yeah, yeah. And uh, everyone from Al-Qaeda, China, Korea were all blamed. The yeah, just of don't evil. open any random mail. Yeah. Uh, the government's resolved to solve these grounds and to bring the perpetrators to justice underscore the significance of combating bioterrorism. The events surrounding 9-11, Operation Dark Water, and the, sub- and the subsequent anthrax attack really fucked the American na- like national consciousness. They were just uh, under attack from all ends. The paranoia. I wonder, this is probably the most time ever that the Americans were under attack by non like Or at least America was the most vulnerable, right? Well, now it is with those like white mass shooters but in gen and by f- like foreign yeah yeah by foreign yeah uh, and amidst these evolving circumstances key figures starting to emerge shaping the course of the u.s policy one of these such figures is a name by paul wolfowitz sounds familiar wolfowitz wolfowitz sounds familiar whose interest to iraq dated back to the late 1970s ah, ah, okay legend yeah Working, like the return. Yeah, working at the Carter Pentagon, he conducted a, stu- a study uh, that explored the possibilities of an Iraqi invasion to seize oil fields. Wolfowitz's thinking went beyond the conventional analysis. He fueled by a more by a weird moral compass that shaped shaped by mid-century liberalism. Right. Another key figure uh, to mention was a person called Richard Pearl, known for connecting intele- intellectual talent to Washington power. Pearl played a crucial role in the new conservative movement fostering a close relationship with Wolfowitz. Their shared vision for the Iraq's future intertwined with their influence by a man named Ahmed Jalabi, the Iraqi exile that we mentioned yes, in the last uh, episode. Uh, they began to hang out with him. The new conservatives ter- uh, turned toward, some trio. towards the prioritizing regime change through American military action gained momentum, influenced by Jalabi's media exposure and personal relationship with, within the right-leaning foreign policy community. So this brings us to something called the PNAC letter, or the Project of New American Century Letter. Panak. 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 It further solidified that these ideas. Who, the people who signed, who signed for these were Wolfowitz Pearl, and they started advocating for regime change in the world and viewing it as a strategic move to reshape the Middle East to a democratic state. Critics argued that the pro-Likud right-wing party in Israel, Netanyahu's uh, part of it, uh, had infiltrated the U.S. ranks and they kind of played an influence on this letter. Of course, they'd want something yeah. like that. So yeah. for figures like Paul Walford, the war in Iraq represented a convergence of issues, unfinished business with Iraq, dealing with Arab ty- tyranny, uh, dealing with weapons, strategic threats to the oil industry, America's weakness, and the inaction of the Democrats. And in another way, it was a way to solidify that Israel would maintain safe in the Middle East. Although by then, Israel was pretty... Yeah, yeah, outside like the the half-assed threats. Israel was never under threat for a while, ever since the 70s and 80s. No. Like since the Egyptian wars and all that. No, I don't think... Because even Lebanon never posed threat. Um, So picture this, okay? I'm a beggar. (laughs) Picture this, um. President George W. Bush's new administration, 
still reeling from the shock of 9-11, with people like Wolfowitz in his ear, and Wolfowitz was also close to Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Like he was up there in the Republican yeah. sphere. They, bo- they all became obsessed with this idea of Iraq being in the next looming threat to the United States. Dude is obsessed. Yeah. Uh, Wolfowitz, who was under the Bush administration, was Deputy Secretary of Defense. So he was right after Dick Cheney? Yeah. No. No, what's his name? Uh, Rumsfeld. They start like legendary names in politics. Yeah. Um, so he started to dismiss non-state actors like Al-Qaeda, saying that this their, Al-Qaeda is just a symptom of the problem, and the problem was Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although there's no relation at that time. At that time. And this was driven by the Cold War, the Cold War mindset that there's nothing called a non-state actor that's not being funded by another big state actor. Yeah. You know, so that Cold War threat or that Cold War, Cold War mentality. It's not the country, but they use like proxy stuff. Yeah. So it's the idea that um, there has to be something bigger that's funding these groups. There's no group that's acting out of personal interest. Yeah, exactly. Like who really fund this? To run the Jules episode. <laughs> so, so this is where things take an intriguing turn. Hours after the planes uh, struck the buildings in, on 9-11, frankly searched for specific information about Iraq just hours after. So without them finding out too or anything? The question echoes in the mind of uh, sorry, Gary, Gary Greco, who also asked, why the desperate search for an unrelated country during a crisis? It's like the eureka moment. Yeah, so it became too clear to someone like Gary that the case was, is being constructed against Iraq, foreshadowing an, imp- an impending war, because he even asked, like, why Iraq? Yeah, it's like the MacGuffin to Iraq War. Yeah, exactly. So meanwhile, while stranded in California due to flight cancellations, Ahmed Jalabi uh, receives a call from a guy named Robert Draper, a member of the Bush administration. Draper was like, what's the dumb's connection to Islamic extremism, uh, especially Al-Qaeda? Now, Jalabi's primary focus, of course, was to get rid of Saddam. There's history there. Yeah. Uh, but when he saw that Americans were desired like desired the Saddam Al-Qaeda connection, he was willing to play along. And he said, there is a connection between Saddam and Islamic extremists. Like, yeah. uh, and that's pres- it's almost like they wanted to hear that answer, though. Yeah. And that's precisely what he did through the Iraqi National Congress. He started funding, like, funneling information about extremism. If you remember from the last episode, Iraqi National Congress was what Clinton paid, the group yeah. that Clinton paid to try to overthrow Saddam in 95. Yeah. Um, so now you're saying, like, hold up, like, what was Bush's mindset during that period, right? Uh, Bush himself was intrigued by the possibility that Saddam was involved in 9-11. Like, he wasn't on board with 100%. He wanted to find if there was evidence for it. Uh, Richard Clark, his National Security of Counterterrorism advisor, investigated the matter and concluded there was no evidence to support such connection. Uh, you think that would be the end of it, right? At least he worked ethically, Richard Clark. Huh? Yeah, the guy was like, and you think Khalas, like Bush was like, you know what? The, the, the counter, security, yeah. yeah, the national security of counterterrorism, saying that there's no connection. Khalas, let's put this to bed. Mm. Um, of course, Paul Wolfowitz was like, nope, nah, ain't gonna Every happen. Every time you say Paul Wolfowitz, I feel like you said Paul Walker. <laughs> okay, what do you want me to call him? Wolfowitz? No, Paul Wolfowitz. Paul Wolfowitz. Okay, he had other plans. Camp David during discussion primarily focused on Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda's connection uh, and where they could be hiding out. Uh, Wolfowitz insisted on dragging Iraq into the mix. Uh, He presented Saddam Hussein as the terrorist-in-chief 
and argues that Iraq should be targeted. And some in the room were like, like some people who were with in that meeting were like, yo, but like Osama bin Laden was there. Like they, yeah. they said it's Osama bin Laden. Like he took credit for it. Yeah. And that... Like even <clears throat> fugitive hunters, Saddam Hassan wasn't in the game. Iraqi propaganda, or like American military propaganda games. Classic. Like Fugitive Hunter. Classic game. <laughs> um, it did introduce a dead skin mask by Slayer. Yeah. Uh, people point, like, so people pointed out that Osama bin Laden was the terrorist in chief and also pointed out that Saddam Hussein and, Sa- and Osama bin Laden were in cahoots. We're actually not in cahoots with one another. We're not, we're not in cahoots with one another. And actually, that Saddam and has rejected Osama bin Laden's advance to to a station in Iraq, and vice versa. So that was the conclusion. Yeah, they're like, listen, like Saddam and Al Qaeda don't mix. You know what I mean? Yeah, Saddam was always uh, anti Al Qaeda. Yeah, anti yeah, all those guys. Because he was like, he was very hardcore nationalist. So the fact that like an is- Islamic extremist could like pull it away. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, uh, but Wolfowitz won't back down. He kept pushing his agenda. So he kept pushing this agenda and leaving others thinking that the Iraq discussion is reaching a climax, right? Little did they know that like Wolfowitz was like far from finished. Like, like okay, you made your piece. Like old man rambling. Kind yeah, of stuff, old, yeah. Man, old man yells at cloud. Okay, later that same day, Wolfowitz would approach George Bush again, expanding on his pitch. He's like, um, he proposes an easily achievable like plans to overthrow Saddam with minimal effort. Wow. Suggesting a no-fly zone, strategic bombings to isolate him from Iraq's oil resources, and according to Wolfowitz, only a small number of troops would be needed to enter Iraq. No. Let it go, bro. Just let it go. All right, all right. Today we har- like we hark on Bush a lot, right? Like Bush, Cheney, Bush, and Rumsfeld. But I think Paul Wolfowitz kind of like if you know, you know. But like I think as general people, he seems think like him, the worst. He's like yeah, he's considered like. Like, if he could just shut the fuck up for two seconds, maybe the war could have been avoided, you know? Exactly, yeah. Or it could have taken a different turn. Maybe they could have just put sanctions and, you know what I mean? That's it, yeah. yeah. So, according to him, like we said, he only said a small number of troops would, of Iraqis would be needed, and Iraqi dissidents would handle the rest themselves. I wonder if he was under any lobbyist group that wanted him to do it. Like, was he paid by a company to Like a military so? complex? Yeah. Maybe. So they could fund it to the weapons. I mm-hmm. didn't see anything from that, but I won't be surprised. That's where my mind is going. Like a company is like, listen, we need to sell weapons. So it's like Iraq is the easiest sell. But Afghanistan would be an easier sell. Pakistan would be an easier but sell. But that's uh, like geographically tougher than Iraq. I guess, yeah. Like maybe, maybe they... Or maybe it's some oil lobbyists. Yeah, they want the oil there. Because one of the... Strategic, true. Afghanistan, Pakistan don't have as much oil. Yeah, one of the things was I think Dick Cheney used to work in an oil company. Bush also had ties with oil. So that's like this conspiracy. Some, it must have been some company that pressured him. Maybe. That's one conspiracy. Yeah. It's like when a guy has a sales uh, bonus and he'll pitch his ass It does come off like that, yeah. Like he's trying to aim for that commission. Yeah. He said that Iraqi dissidents would handle the task themselves. It's like we'll just send in troops. They'll just kick off something. And Iraqi would, um, in a very audacious claim, that Iraqis will help themselves. Bush finds this proposition intriguing and wastes no time expressing his interest to the Secretary of Defense that like, okay, this could be something. And just like that, the exploration of creative options for Iraq was set in motion. No concrete decisions yet, but the dialogue is alive and kicking. And this is just the beginning of the road. Yeah, took the bait. Yeah, now the reasons behind the US invasion of Iraq, even today, is still shrouded in a lot of uncertainty and a lot of, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, you know what I mean? But prior to the invasions, American also ha- like Americans held conflicting opinions 
so like for example they really tried to push a link between uh, George uh, Saddam Hussein and this guy called Muhammad Atta one of the 9-11 hijackers um, and then because apparently rumor has it is that he went and met uh, with Iraqi intelligent officials but this investigation revealed that uh, no concrete there was no concrete evidence that supports that they met an Iraqi intelligence officer in the Czech Republic Cheney, Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz and their team refused to back down so Cheney, Wolfowitz, and their team refused to back down. A mainstream view at the CIA that there was little connection between Iraq and Osama bin Laden or Al-Qaeda. They persisted in their pursuit. Even when the CIA couldn't even de- like deliver their, their information they wanted, they turned to alternative sources. And, th- and thus, the controversial policy of counterterrorism evaluation group was born. A Department of Defensive Initiative ready to embrace any way of like finding sources. You know what I mean? They would pay people hundreds of bucks just to give them a source, like like a snitch. I'll trust a ten dollars snitch at this point. So picture this: a, the group went so far to create their own artifact. Um, think of like, you know, Charlie's uh, in uh, It's Always Sunny. Yeah. The male episode with the conspiracy lines. Yeah. They did their own thing like that on the like board. Any way to connect it. Anyway, and it was they called it the Beautiful Mind Scroll, like inspired from Russell Crowe, how like he would like. Sketch out ideas. The Pentagon would cover a whole scroll made of like parchment papers. And on one end was Saddam Hussein, on the other end was Osama bin Laden, and they're trying to find how to link it all, how together. To link it all together. That's, a, that's an image, I'm sure. <laughs> it was like so. That's right. It's like that movie In the Loop was a documentary. Yeah? Using this conspiracy theory as an excuse to avoid sex with me. The way they play with words, in the, you remember in, in the loop when she's like, we're the war committee? It's like, no, 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 we're the committee for future planning. Yeah. It's literally, like, it's just, it was a disc because America did that. For those of you who haven't seen it, advise in the loop. It's a good satire on the Iraq on, war. On what happened, yeah. Yeah, so, like, you see all this mind, mind-boggling bullshit, right? Um, just, like, low-key, I wish I was in that, like, to be a fly in that wall, to just see them try to connect the or dots. Imagine being an intern, just being there. <laughs> just watching all that. Uh, President Bush himself became convinced of a vague connection between Saddam and the terrorist groups. He still kind of, like, had that vague notion that there is some kind of connection. And the process behind this conclusion remains shrouded in mystery. No one really knows why Bush um, kind of just, like, play, went along with it. Or like why he thought there was an inkling. Maybe he had something against Saddam. Probably because he was just a weak man and very impressionable. Like easily impressionable, perhaps. And these are like... Like Dick Cheney, there was always a joke that I'm sure they were much stronger characters than him. Yeah, yeah. Like in That's My Bush. Like they pressured him a lot. Yeah. And it's weak. Because um, he barely won that election too. Or the fact that maybe he tried to kill my daddy. After all, this is the guy that tried to kill my dad. <laughs> tried to kill my Instead, there was a mix of ongoing discussions and Bush's own instincts seemed to shape the belief in Saddam's nefarious activities. Is it me or didn't Bush say that like God told him to invade Iraq? I remember there was something, something like that, right? 2003, then President Bush reportedly having claimed that God told him to go to war. Mr. Bush reported as having said, quote, God would tell me, George, go and fight those terrorists in Afghanistan, and I did. And then God would tell me, George, go and end the tyranny in Iraq, and I did. Our fifth story on the countdown, it turns out that God received a rather hefty assist from Donald Rumsfeld. Newly released memos showing that Mr. Bush's defense secretary, having placed on the cover of his daily reports to the president, biblical passages and corresponding war imagery. 
Uh, the media's incessant insinuations amplified by the administration led to many Americans believe that Saddam was responsible for 9-11. And we'll talk about the media's involvement, like how much the media played like into sending out this bullshit narrative that Saddam was linked to 9-11. Even CIA Director George Tennant, straying from his own organization's consensus, wrote to the Senate Intelligence Committee that there is a link between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. Even the CIA director was like, listen, there is a link. Despite people in his own organization, them like there is no link. Yeah. But lacking full CIA endorsement, the administration needed an alternative justification, right? So of course, this took like its toll on the intelligence community. Like when the crucial questions of Saddam's weapon program arose, a lot of them had like a collective sigh because like someone brought it up. They're like, "What about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction?" That was like the excuse. A collective sigh revealed a relief echoed through the corridors, and someone emerged and said, "Absolutely, he does have weapons of mass destruction, and he provided provided temporary escape from like trying to connect Saddam to 9/11." Now it was trying to connect Saddam to weapons of mass destruction. Else, something more that they could hold on to. Yeah. This nigga very possibly has weapons of mass destruction. I can't sleep on that. Not on my watch. That's not how I roll. That is serious. So back in 2002, the Bush administration's laser focus was fixed on Iraq, right? Uh, driven by deep concern over those dreaded weapons of mass destruction, this became their casus belli, right? Or their justification of war. Hinged on Saddam's alleged possession of these lethal weapons and the fact that he could deploy them or the, even the possibility of him trying to... Sh- he and might even share it. Saddam had enough grievances to have them yeah. declare war. Yeah, they denounced him, even on yeah, bullshit claims. Yeah, yeah. Like, and of course, the biggest thing was like, instead of him deploying them, they're like, but what if he sells them? He's a rogue state, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and all of this, of course, under the guise of protecting the United States. Um, During the vulnerable period. Yeah. A narrow rationale for war was carefully crafted and empath- empathized to sway the public. Empathized. Opin- no, empathized. Empathized. Yeah. Not empathized. No, empathized. It was like empathized to sway public opinion. Uh, user empathy. Yeah. Okay. Even though some officials within the administration had like more ambitious agendas, like, of course, Mr. Wolfowitz, who dreamt of just shaping the entire Middle East instead of just Iraq. But Iraq to him was the launch point. Think. Christopher Tink, the big fucking picture, huh? But the way they were saying it was like Iraq needed to be stopped and we'll leave. To him, it was like, no, we need to reshape the Middle East as a whole. This guy's a character, huh? Mm. Just make him look like an idiot, you know? (laughs) Uh, The administration, despite lacking evidence, ramped up its efforts to convince the American public of the urgent need for this preemptive strike on Iraq. The rhetoric soared to new heights. It was facts were selected to be presented for the worst case scenario. So it was never about like, what Iraq did, it was like, what could Iraq, Iraq do? do? You know, it was always, it's, it, it's yeah. all hypothetical scenarios, you know, the worst case. But yeah. the one truth they needed to find was the weapons of mass destruction. Anything to prove that there was a facility was good enough, you know? WMD. It's like, huh, we told you. Now, imagine if he did this to us. And an impending sense of dangers was meticulously cultivated, and the administration found itself backed into a corner, having decided on a war before fully comprehending its own justification. So, it, like... They got to the conclusion before they even know how they got, how are they gonna get there. So they're like weapons of mass destruction. Let's go to it. They didn't. Yeah, but they didn't have like proper justification. It's like a, or it's like finish writing the ending of the movie without knowing how you're gonna get to that ending. The movie ends up being a bomb. Mm-hmm. The Bush administration uh, unveiled this grand strategy for American power, and an un- and a new doctrine was released: the Bush Doctrine. Clever name. The other 
doctrine that's really important, and it's a, a change of attitude. Uh, it's going to require a change of attitude for a while, is that when you see a threat, you got to deal with it before it hurts you. <laughs> a fusion of realism and idealism aimed to promoting American values and interests. Gone were the days of traditional balance of power and, and preemptive act- action took center stage. Uh, this doctrine marked the significant departure from the past, a new world, new world order. Brother. Enter this clandestine group called the White House Iraq Group. They would always hover around the Situation Room as they would debate on, on Iraq. These included the National Security Advisor, Condoleezza Rice. Calm, pal. <laughs> Calm, Rice. <laughs> Can't stand you. Shaney's Chief of Staff, Scooter Libby. Uh, and they would gather with Dick Cheney and Ron Ronsfield, and they would gather week after week during that fateful summer of 2002, trying to find, and this included also communication gurus, speechwriters, strategy makers, each one trying to find like how to word this properly. Alex Jones would have loved that. that yeah. <laughs> and like, they're like we, need to, like, we need to figure out how to sell this before September. Now, the question is, why September, right? For the anniversary, so could we ring up and all that? So what was the objective? So they wanted to present it to the, cl- to the people, right? They wanted to, like, they created like this, like, we need to create a campaign that will sell the war to the American public. White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card, in a moment of brutal honesty, shared a cunning insight with the New York Times. He said, from a marketing point of view, you don't introduce a new product in August. Oh, wow. Was it like back to school season? Back to school season? Exactly. You introduced it in September. Uh, it's like an FMCG thing. <laughs> yeah. However, Vice President Dick Cheney always wanted to jump the gun, couldn't resist, but unveiled a new product prematurely during a speech in the Veterans of Foreign War Convention in Nashville. And he seems like the premature type. Yeah. He, he always prematurely shoots a shot, huh? Uh, Dick Cheney initially was not meant to be the face of the war effort, right? Like the plan was never to have Dick Cheney talk about the war effort because... He was a bit polarizing, Pisha, as we all know. And plus, he always had like a smug look on his face. He wasn't very likable. No, he wasn't. He was a No. Like, at least Bush had a charm. No, but then... but, but he, Bush has a dumb charm. But he came off serious enough for people to listen to him. You know what yeah, I mean? He looks like the grumpy uncle you don't yeah. hang out with. <laughs> but back then, in the 2002, a lot of people listened to him because like, Dick Cheney had like the history, you know what I mean? He, he served under Reagan. Yeah. You know? Um... He was Bush's. Uh, he took America through the first Gulf War. If you remember, he was he was with Bush, yeah. Herbert Walker Bush. Wasn't it Kristen Bale and Dick Cheney movie? Yeah, yeah. On September eighth, it marked a pivotal moment as the White House engaged in discussions with uh, with reporters. This is where we meet Judith Miller, one of the key figures, the media selling of the war. She used to be a journalist for the New York Times. They would release attention-grabbing stories such as the U.S. says Hassan intensified his quest for an A bomb. And she suggested that Saddam Hussein was on the brink of creating a nuclear bomb. Wow. Or that he already had possessed them and he was hiding them. Meanwhile, opinion columnists such as Frank Rich provided his own insights leading up to the war. Of course, it was like one thing that Bush was so good at, or like his era, was they were such good propagandists. And it became so evident, like the likes of Dick Cheney and Condi Rice and Donald Rumsfeld and Colin Powell, like they used to go to various Sunday morning talk shows. Uh, yeah, they, I remember they were all over TV. All they, those guys. Yeah, they would write op-eds, you know, in, new, in like newspapers, talking about like the evidence of the looming threat of Iraq. Uh, they would always like with a smile. They pointed to articles. So like when they would talk, like when they would talk, like if you don't believe us, leave the New York Times. Mm. 
the strategic or- or orchestration continued as Condi Rice, during a CNN appearance, even cited a quote from the Times article, emphasizing that Saddam Hussein's alleged pursuit of specific tubes essential for building a centrifuge, a crucial component in nuclear weapon development. But the piece de resistance was an unforgettable phrase. It was the mushroom cloud. It was crafted by a cunning speechwriter from the White House Iraq group. The hunting term was initially intended for the use of, in a presidential speech. However, the chilling effect was so captivating that the group couldn't resist deploying it earlier. This phrase tapped into the anxieties of the Cold War era, conjuring visions of nuclear destruction and even cleverly invoked the haunting image of the Twin Towers collapsing in a cloud of smoke. It served as a powerful counter-argument against those advocating for waiting to concrete evidence of weapons mass destruction. It's like, if you wait, we're going to get a mushroom cloud. President Bush himself emphasized Iraq's possession of WMDs in his public statements, even asserting in his speech at the UN that if Iraq acquired fissile material, they could construct a nuclear weapon within a year. So as autumn settled in, the full-scale rollout of WMD narratives were under the way. That was the only thing they were talking about. Weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction. They even forgot about the link between 9-11 and Saddam Hussein. Yeah, they found uh, the, the right The goat, yeah. However, support for the invasion of Iraq nearly had dwindled by 20% the previous year. So by then, people kind of like lost uh, interest in the Iraq narrative because apparently there was uh, issues. The economy was kind of tanking in 2002. They're like, listen, like, we don't care. We just want to fix internally. You know what I mean? Kind of like what's happening now or like under Trump where like, they'll talk about foreign problems and it's like people are like, yeah, okay, but what about our employment? Yeah, our stuff, yeah. Yeah. President Bush felt a mounting pressure to personally make the strongest possible case. In an October speech in Cincinnati, he, sk- he skillfully hinted the connection between Iraq, 9-11, and uh, weapons of mass destruction, all in one loop. But it was all full of errors. So, for example, the first error was the connection between Iraq and 9-11. Uh, like we said, the CIA said there was no link between them. Iraq's possession of chemical and biological weapons. He kept repeatedly saying that Iraq had stockpiles of chemical and biological weapons, yet there was no evidence from inspectors of a large-scale stockpile of any type of weapon. Iraq's famous aluminum tubes. He highlighted that aluminum tubes was evidence of them pursuing a nuclear bomb. However, this claim was very controversial. It divided, like, people were like, okay, yeah, but he could use aluminum tubes for a lot of Other things. things yeah. Yeah. And the threat poised by... A, Poised by Iraq. Bush portrayed Iraq as like one of the biggest uh, threats to the United States, America's enemy number one. How, and he, that's when he also started uh, referring to them as a rogue state, Saddam Hussein running a rogue state, his own state. So why did Bush feel this immense uh, like pressure to heighten this rhetoric? Well, they had a timeline, right? March 2003 had been designated as the target date for the military operation. Before the desert heat became too oppressive. So they're like, we, if we're going to go to Iraq, we need to do it at spring. Before summer. Yeah. So the best time was on March. And curiously, the troops had already been stationed in Kuwait since September. So they're already waiting for it. They're waiting. You know, one of uh, America's foreign, fo- foreign bases. Officially engaged in military exercises and keen observers interpreted this movement as a clear indication that they were khas. The war was already underway. They were getting ready. Yeah. Kind of what Putin did with Ukraine, right? Yeah. Uh, of course, so they started, so they were starting to push it more and more, but they had a lot of stakeholders. So they had to appease the Congress of the United States because, you know, you need a Congress vote. The American public needed to be on board. And then you had the United Nations. And then you, of course, had Americans' allies. And they had a tight framework to work with. They had five months to convince all these stakeholders that they need to go to war. Um, like Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah. But it's insane, like, how that happened, right? So to quickly go back uh you remember how i mentioned the anthrax 
So in the aftermath of 9-11, we said that the world was like kind of gripped or like there was a sense of paranoia that America could be attacked again, right? Yeah. On October 4th, 2001, a photo editor at the parent company of the National Enquirer was diagnosed with anthrax poisoning. How did he get, how did he get anthrax? Well, he opened the letter and apparently it was filled with anthrax. And then the news sent shockwaves across the country, right? Uh, sparking a wave of concern and paranoia. People in Florida reported suspicious powder. Cities were running out of hazmat suits and the nation was on high alert, right? The anthrax laced letters didn't stop there. It attacked other U.S. senators, news outlets, uh, news anchor Tom Brockway uh, found himself at the center of the deadly game as well. And an individual called Grant Leslie, an intern at the office of Tom Deschel, a senator majority leader, was also affected by anthrax. Now, why is this important? Is because America tried to link the anthrax attack first to Al Qaeda, and then secondly to Iraq. They thought that Iraq was behind the anthrax, and that also opened up that Amer- that Iraq had biochemical weapons. weapons. Um, just good, just so you could know, like why the Americans were more inclined to. Yeah, uh, this lack of solid evidence, though. Like at the end, it turned out it didn't turn out to be anything. Um, if anything, there's a dude called Bruce Ivins, a scientist who had dead, who had access to anthrax, uh, committed suicide in 2008. Even though it wasn't kind of an admission of guilt, people assumed it was him who did it. Uh, but the damage was done. The lack of solid evidence didn't really deter the White House from including Iraq in the infamous Axis of Evil uh, group, yep. which included Iraq, Iran, and North Korea for some reason. It's like a group that don't really interact at all. And the the thing is, it's like, yeah, but why? Like, first of all, Iraq, Iran, like when you say the term axis, you assume it's like a group together. They're they're all in the same axis. Yeah, or they're in in cahoots with one another, right? Yeah. Iraq and Iran just went through an eight-year war where they kind of decimated themselves. And North Korea, like, what the fuck does North Korea have to do with any of this? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like the triple alliance, (laughs) but they weren't alliance. Alliance, you, you just can't pick people at random. I can do anything I like. I'm eccentric. But the, whole, but the thing worked at the end, right? Because at the end of the day, it became kind of like a bipartisan issue where people from the left and people from the right were kind of also supporting the war now. You had figures in the media such as Bill Keller and Christopher Hitchens and uh, Michael Kelly and Farid Zakaria and even Vanity Fair all talked about George Bush was right in pursuing Iraq or they kind of supported the war in Iraq and it became a pro-war consensus even among liberals was uh, driven by the desire to prove, disprove the accusations of being we're not this weak need nation you know what I mean and that uh, we need to go help Iraq on a humanitarian basis right and this was the early day of blogging so a lot of bloggers started to come out and they were kind of like they were kind of influencing the mainstream newspaper as well, and they start jumping and blog- blogging in favor of the war. So everyone was in on it. Everyone was in on it. However, it's important to note, like, but of course, not everyone was there. People complained about it. For example, Katha uh, Polyet, a writer for the Nation, resisted this flag-waving patriotism, and even sparked controversy and raising important questions. However, uh, the rising of the flag-waving por- uh, patriotism was on the rise. Everyone was an American all of a sudden. You know what I mean? If you didn't support the war in Iraq, you're not an American. America. America, yeah. Um, that's why Dixie Chicks got canceled, if you remember the Dixie Chicks. 
Um, well, Michael Moore was against it from the start. Yeah, and look how much he's hated on. Like people of Arab descent in America started facing increased attacks, harassments, racial profiling was gaining legitimacy through something what we began to know as the, the Patriot Act. Uh, Islamophobia intensified, creating a challenges and creating a challenging political climate that we're still less, like going through today. Like people who are brown skinned would just be attacked just on the chance they might be mean, Muslim. Yeah. Like Sikhs would like, get attacked. Yeah, they would associate Indians with Iraqis for some reason. Yeah. Good old fashioned executive racism. So a critical period following Vietnam, the Congress passed something called the War Powers Act, right? It was designed to restrict presidential authority in military action that was lasting over 60 days. So the president can declare a war that would last over 60 days. Uh, but as history often shows, the struggle for power is always relentless, right? George Bush proposed a measure that would grant him a broader authority to combat terrorism, effectively bypassing the constraints of the War, war Powers Act. Um, this is where we meet Congresswoman Barbara Lee. A vigilant observer saw the da- this dangerous president, a gateway to perpetual war. She's like, if we give the president the right to make wars, then we'll never be out of a war. She's not wrong. Uh, on September 14th, uh, with burdened by the weight of 9-11, and the imp- they've, they would decide to move for this vote, right? She became deeply conflicted. This is 2002, right? 2001. I'm going back a bit. She became deeply conflicted. Like, should I vote? Like, if she doesn't vote for this after 9-11, how will she come off, right? She looked bad, yeah. Yeah. Congresswoman Barbara Lee would become known in history for her vote against the resolution. How come? She was the only vote no. Wow. Good on her. Yet her brave stance did not come without consequences. She got backlash. She got criticized from her colleagues, doubting her decision. Like Some even told her that this is going to be the end of her political career, you know? Tragically, the price of this uh, dissent uh, reached unimaginable heights. Congress Lee received numerous death threats uh, from people claiming that she was un-American. For Barbara Lee, the post-9-11 political climate appeared unwise and dangerous as the fleeting unity seemed evaporated. A, p- a pivotal issue emerged, granting the de- Department of Homeland Security a permanent position in the cabinet. Ah, damn. That's what came out of it. This was kind of the prelude to the vote for Iraq. Like we said, they were hesitant to seek congressional permission for another war in summer of 2002. Because they already joined Afghanistan, right? Mm. They're like, but if we go for another war, there might be hard sell to, to, everyone, yeah. to everyone. So they were kind of like looking like, okay, the, the thing we just pushed, can, does it cover Iraq? You know what I mean? Can we move into Iraq? This brings us to something called Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, right? Which grants the Congress the power to formally declare war. Meanwhile, the Bush administration faced mounting opposition from their potential allies worldwide. Uh, faced with this reality, the White House reluctantly realized it needed to work with Congress. Because like the United Nations is not going to take us to war, we're going to have to take ourselves to war. Uh, in September 2002, the White House requested Congress to pass a resolution authorizing the invasion of Iraq. Administration members took the airwaves presenting the dramatic case for war. Smoking gun will turn to a mushroom cloud, etching themselves into a collective consciousness, right? Meanwhile, Republicans seized the opportunity to, uh, to politicize the grief surrounding 9-11, weaving it into their partisan events. Karl Rove, the senior advisor to President Bush, said that 9-11 was, con- was because Democrats were weak on national security. It was during this time that Democratic Senate staffers stumbled upon a floppy disk near the park uh, of, uh, next to the White, near the White House, revealed Karl Rove's strategy for defeating the Democrats in the 2002 midterm election. 
he like lost the floppy disk that had like revealed the plan on how they were going to defeat the Democrats. <laughs> I wonder if he lost it or someone stole it. I don't know. They say the guy said that he found it in a park. <laughs> uh, floppy disks are like kind of like old school USBs for those uninitiated. Oh yeah, two point five megabytes. Yeah. Uh, the Democrats, disheartened by these political tactics, pondered the next move. They're like, okay, how do we respond? If we voted no for the war, we'd look like... Losers! 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 This brings us to four people who will change the destiny of George Bush's war. And they're all named Dick. Hmm. So there was Dick Army, the second highest ranking member of the House of Republicans and a staunch conservative. He's known for wearing a big cowboy hat too. He was a, big, he was a close ally to George Bush. However, in 2002, while he was campaigning in, in Iowa, he made a headline, he kind of made a controversial remark suggesting that Bush would be better leaving Saddam Hussein alone. He even questioned the values of involving United States in an expensive overseas conflict that didn't directly threaten the nation. Oh, good on him. He had announced his plans to retire from the House after this term, okay? So he didn't have to worry about the next election. However, the Bush administration had concerns about his vote. They feared that his opposition could provide cover for the Democrats and Republicans who were also against the war. If he voted no, then I'll feel confident yeah, to vote uh, no. Yeah. The last thing they wanted was to be labeled as weak if a prominent conservative figure spoke out against them. They made several attempts to sway him, starting with an invitation to the White House cabinet room. They took him to Camp David. Cheney, who provided, played the pivotal role, he convinced him to shift his position. In late September, just weeks before the vote, Cheney conducted a brief briefing where he presented an assessment of the threat posed by Iraq. His presentation went beyond what he publicly stated and even surpassed the beliefs of the CIA. He was going wild, you know? Bullets for bullet points, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he went all out. <laughs> all out. Cheney claimed that Iraq was developing portable uh, nuclear weapons and painted a picture of, like, the potential danger of these, like, portable mini nuclear bombs. The presentation had significant impact on army who subsequently ceased speaking out against it and would vote for it now this brings us to another senator named dick durbin a democrat from illinois who was nearing the end of his first term durbin was known for residing in the group of house Are they dicks or richards all richards but they all go by dicks <laughs> um they're all dicks too uh, in a group of House of Capitol Hill with other Democrat congressmen, creating an environment akin to a frat house. As a member of the Intelligence Committee, Durbin had an access to full classified information regarding Iraq provided by the administration. He grew increasingly troubled by the lack of solid evidence, especially the absence of proof that Iraq possessed a stockpile of weapons, LWMDs. During Intelligence Committee here, Durbin learned that a comprehensive assessment of the Intelligence Committee, known as the NIE, or the National Intelligence Estimate, had never been conducted. He believed that such evaluation was customary for significant matters such as this. Durbin successfully advocated the CIA to conduct an NIE, but there, there was a challenge. The White House had a strict timeline and wanted Congress to vote. They didn't have time for an NIE. But Durbin was like, listen, I get it, but, you, but he's like, but we need evidence to justify this invasion. The CIA, under the leadership of George Tennant, you remember who also kind of mm -hmm. fell into the rabbit hole, had a faced the daunting task to produce the NIE within a remarkable short time frame of 19 days. Imagine. The process was highly unusual for a report that typically took months to complete. Durbin, however, was not impressed with the expedited nature of the report. He believed that mobilizing all the intelligence agencies on such a critical issue required more time and effort. 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 <laughs> he argued that they lacked reliable intelligence and failed to provide any serious assessment. 
the resulting NIE, despite descending opinions on key evidence and a lack of proof regarding Iraq's imminent nuclear cap- uh, capabilities, failed to change the minds of the of members of Congress. Right. Only a few senators, including Durbin, took time to study the NIE in detail. And I'm pretty sure the, uh, Bernie Sanders would also be one of them. He looks like someone who'd read this meticulously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do the boring jobs. This, the Bernie Sanders guy. Yeah. yeah, most relied on a short to declassified white paper that, that aligned more with the administration's favorite intelligence. Okay. Uh, this selective approach reinforced the pre-existing inclination among members of Congress with skeptics becoming even more skeptical and supporters finding additional justification for their pro-war stance. So this kind of just made people either more skeptical or it kind of said people like, oh, look, yeah. the evidence is all there. So this kind of also created, like influenced the vote. Now this brings us to number three, Dick number three, Dick Luger, a centrist Republican. Uh, names are getting made up as you can <laughs> And he would become influential because he would hang out with another centrist Democrat by the name of Joe Biden, collaborated on a bill that aimed to find the middle ground. It was called the Biden-Luger bill. We said, okay, it authorized intervention into Iraq, but it restricted what they will do. They're going to go for humanitarian purposes only, like just to stop the MWMDs. They don't want to sit there and occupy Iraq until it becomes democratic. The bill focused on disarmament rather than regime change, and it required United Nations approval before invading, and demanded that the president demonstrate to Congress the severity of these WMD threats if the the UN approval couldn't be obtained. However, the the British, the Bush administration desired a resolution that granted broad authority to go into war, and and they tried to block this bill from being passed. Despite the challenges... Biden and Lugas team worked tirelessly throughout September, aiming to garner support for the bill, and they believed they had private backing of Colin Powell. More on him later. That's a decent bill, though, to propose. I mean, it'd be a good bill not to go to war, but yeah, if you yeah, were yeah. going to war, at least like disarm him and fuck off, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the goal was but to... Then, like, you literally are worried about weapons of mass destruction. Okay, go take and come back. Yeah. Uh, Infiltrate the dealer, find the supply. <laughs> Infiltrate the dealer, find the supply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Infiltrate the dealer's Find a supply. We get to be brothers? Infiltrate the dealers, find a supply. But if we find the supplier first, we don't have to worry about the dealer. God damn. Infiltrate the dealers, find a supply. Their, de- their goal was to present a unified voice in the country and convey the message that the nations in the world that. This brings us to the fourth Dick. Okay. Now, Dick uh, Geppenhardt was a flexible Democrat from Missouri and had his sights on the upcoming elections and had hopes of becoming Speaker of the House if the Democrats had gained control. He was also considering against running against Bush in 2004. Gephardt's decision and actions regarding the Iraq resolution were influenced by his political ambitions at the time. He voted against the Gulf War in 91, but he said that since he wanted, like he had presidential aspirations, uh, he didn't want his members to suffer politically, right? And if Bush decided to go to war in Iraq, appearing tough on Iraq seemed advantageous to him, given like the popularity of the Gulf War. Has like it would be like if I voted for, uh, I'll be able to get some support for my presidential run. Um, now, while Senator Joe Biden and Dick Luger were definitely like were diligently working on their efforts, Gephardt was making progress with the White House. The collaboration surprised Biden and Luger and their team as they like. Uh, the guy was like, this guy's a flexible Democrat, and he engaged with Bush's team multiple times, including a meeting with George Tenet to discuss the intelligence. However, Gephardt maintains that there was no political motives behind his deal with the White House, although evidence suggests otherwise. 
Uh, he sponsored the resolution and that aligned more closely with that of the Bush administration and deviated from Biden and Lugar's efforts. He denounced it. He claimed to have attempted to negotiate further concessions with Bush, but the administration was not interested. He would later say that he would regret, the, regret doing what he did. Despite the objections of Biden and Lugar, the resolution passed both House and Senate. It was approved 2,296 votes to 133 to go to Iraq, with both Dick Army and Dick Gartner voting in favor. Most Democrats, including Barbara Lee, voted against it. In the Senate, the resolution passed with the vote of 77 to 23, with only one Republican senator, Lincoln Shafi, who voted against it. The unspoken hero. Yeah. Notably, Dick, uh, Dick Luger and Biden voted in favor of the resolution. Oh, really? Yeah. Several Democratic senators who were potential presidential candidates, such as John Kerry, John Edwards, and Dick Gappenhead, also supported it. Really? Yeah, because they all, they all wanted to run for presidency in 2004. Mm. It's interesting how... It like a popular vote, yeah. Yeah. That's why when people condemn Biden or that he voted, and of course Hillary Clinton was a pro-supporter of the Just war. Pro-everything nasty. The, the evidence suggests that political consideration was indeed a factor in the Iraq vote for some members of the Congress, while many politicians claim that their votes was based on, conscious, on, on conscience or on intelligence available at the time. It was on either on going on good conscience or not, you know? There were instances where political survive, uh, survival played a role. Walter Shapiro recalls a moment when the senator pri- privately admitted to supporting the war for political reasons despite knowing it was wrong to do so. It's so political. They, they just did it for popularity reasons. Yeah. The 2002 authorization of military force remains in effect, the one that Bush went through. President Obama and Trump both invoked them uh, for their respective military attacks against ISIS and Iran when he killed Soleimani. Yeah. yeah. So this is the result of Bush's uh, authorization act. Uh, backing Bush's war didn't yield in electoral benefits for any of the Democrats. They all failed big time. Even Kerry, when he ran against Bush, he got bombed. Yeah, that was a disaster. Yeah. yeah, midterm elections tend to favor the party not in power, but in 2002, Republicans retained the House and the Senate. So it shows all of it was in vain. Yeah. This is what happens when you... Sold their souls to the devil. Record. Now this brings us to who? The United Nations. Now Bush had to go sell it to the United Nations that he wants to go to war in they Iraq. They worked hard, man. They worked that hard to fix the country. <laughs> country. <laughs> man, America would be like so rich. <laughs> If all that effort was done, yeah, it's that. insane. Like you don't think about it, but really, how was he running the country? Exactly, and secondly, you don't like now hindsight. You're like, yo, bro, like he literally had five months to sell the whole world on a war. Like back then, it felt like a longer stretch of time, but like literally, he had like from September to March to convince everyone. How they put that effort in anything economic else. policy? So George Bush's administrations already built the case for war for the Americans, right? Who did they turn to to sell the war to the United Nations? Enter Colin Powell. Maybe like the most famous he's ever going to get was during that speech. Colin Powell was his trusted secretary of the state to President Bush, right? And his job was to present the United States official justification at the UN Security Council on February. He was supposed to go in February to the UN Security Council and sell them the war. Now, Colin Powell is known for his credibility. Out of all the members of Bush's cabinet... Colin Powell was the most liked. He was considered the most moderate. He was kind of like socially democratic, fiscally Republican type of dude. You know what I mean? He was the perfect choice to go to the United Nations to talk, to sell them about the war in Iraq. Ex-military background. He was involved in Gulf War. Um, he came off more moderate than Dick Cheney. And Colin, them. 
And you know, it's easier than a white man coming to sell a if war. A, if an African American went, yeah, yeah, yes. you know what I mean. Mm. Perception. If it's a white man saying I'm going to invade the Middle East, yeah, yeah, it comes off wrong, right? <laughs> According to Robert Draper, right? Powell had his resume on his book How to Start a War, which I use extensively for this research. And the Static X album. Yeah, I uh, use Static X How to Start a War extensively yeah, for this okay, research. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> 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 that was about the Iraq War. Uh, Robert Draper wrote that Colin Powell had his reservations about the intelligence that was provided to him by the White House on, about the Iraq War. The initial document he received was underwhelming and included discredited information. And such as the alleged link between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. He's like, I can't take, yo, bro, like, it could work in America, but I can't oh, take yeah, this yeah. In, uni- in the United yeah, Nations. The leagues, yeah, man. this is the big leagues, you know. This is not, like, recognizing the need for a stronger case, Colin Powell discarded most of the document, and he's like, we need to start anew, requiring an extension to deliver the speech. Unfortunately, they, the administration was like, I'm honored, but that's going to be a hard no from me. We have a deadline. It's March. It they should ca- make the movie uh, Compound Pal. played by Tom Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Netflix adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> or they could get like Denzel Washington like in flight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, I was like, help me God. Yeah. He's like, what? He's like, I lied. <laughs> Give the man an Oscar. I said, God help me. They denied his plea and they forcing a frantic effort to revise the presentation in a short time frame. He's like, okay, at least give me bullet bullet points, you know? Mm. <laughs> uh, in the scramble, Colin Powell and his team turned, the, turned to the CIA for assistance. This brings us back to who? George motherfucking Tennant. I got a word. Tennant. Tennant. Uh, so George Tennant proposed using national intelligence estimate, the one that they did for the Congress. It's like the he, NIA. That 19-day bullshit we cocked up. It's like, take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which represented the consensus view of the intelligence community regarding the weapons program. However, Powell was unaware that the NIE just compiled, like they compiled this in 19 days and he just took it with him, you know? He, like he could, like if he knew, he was like, yo bro, like this is incredible. Like, you know, I mean, if yeah. people find out this took 19 days. Yeah, legitimacy. So February 5th, 2003, the moment has come. Colin Powell enters the United Nations with the presentation in hand, he presents the strongest case for war. He wore a dark suit jacket with the American flag pinned on it. He embarked on the speech that would shape his legacy forever. Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. So the Iraq speech has become his defining moment, if anything, throughout his whole career. Was that the United Nations? It's the most famous image, him holding the papers in the United Nations. Um, his presentation aimed to emphasize the credibility of his statements, backing them with solid sources and factual intelligence. He highlighted the involvement of human sources and shared examples, substantiate his claims. Throughout the hour long speech, Powell's in- intensities was pal- palatable. Palatable. Okay? One assertion that caught the attention of the observers was the, exist- was the existence of mobile production facilities used by Iraq for the development of biological weapons. Powell cited eyewitness accounts describing these facilities mounted on wheels that would move from place to place. Unbeknownst to Powell, some of the intelligence he relied on was der- derived from a person codenamed Curveball. Margaret uh, Hanock, I think that's a... Hey, 
H E N O C H Zahi whatever Margaret a CIA analyst watched the speed attentively when Powell mentioned the line of a of a mobile weapons labs and when he mentioned the name uh, curveball she realized that the crucial information that she wrote about it had not reached him she immediately contacted her colleagues expressing concern about the use of these particular intelligence she vividly recalled the reaction saying we were just like what the fuck I called upstairs and said did you guys not get what I sent did you guys see that you have you shouldn't have used that the revelation of curveball's involvement raised questions about the credibility of the whole intelligence I'll tell you why now it became evident that Powell had not had not been provided with any significant detail from the CIA now the fallout from Powell's United Nations presentation and the use of questionable intelligence would cast a long shadow for the case of war as public scrutiny intensified, the credibility of the Bush administration's claim came under intense scrutiny. With that pivotal UN presentation, Colin Powell stepped onto the global stage, armed with what he believed was credible evidence. However, revelations surrounding the intelligence sources added another layer of complexity. So the question is, why was the curveball considered like the death knell, right? A better question is, who was curveball? And what made his, the information private, provided so valuable? and so controversial. This is Rafid Ahmad Alwan at a Baghdad wedding in 1993, six years before he became the key Iraqi source known as Curveball, six years before he helped launch the war. Former CIA senior official Tyler Drumheller was an insider and watched Curveball emerge from nowhere. How important was Curveball in taking us to war in Iraq? If they had not had curveball, they'd probably found something else because there was a great determination to do it. But going to war in Iraq, under the circumstances we did, curveball was the absolutely essential case. Curveball's real name was Rafid Ahmed Alwan, who had a troubled history. He had a background in chemical engineering, but faced difficulties in his studies, ultimately working as a television production company owned by Aday Hussein, son of Saddam. However, he left his job and found himself with an arrest warrant for theft from the same company. His involvement as Curveball began when he tried to seek a political asylum in Germany in 1999, fearing imprisonment for embezzlement from the Iraqis. Initially, Alwan claimed he was the top graduate of chemical engineering and a key member of a team involved in building mobile labs uh, for the production of dead, deadly biological weapons. Okay? We just mentioned that... Um, he was a television production company, yeah. but he said that he used to work for the labs that created biological weapons. These claims caught the attention of the German authorities, who, de- who debriefed him extensively from 1990 to 2001. Though the Americans did not have direct access to Curveball, some information obtained from his, dispre- dispre- uh, his debriefing from, by the German intelligence agency, the BND, was later passed on to the United States. To encourage his cooperation, he was granted asylum in Germany and provided financial support without having to work. However, despite significant flaws and inconsistencies in his stories, such as describing the designs and the systems that were used, the information he provided about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, and particularly the existence of mobile weapons labs, were uh, found its way to America. Uh, His assertion that Iraq's production of biological agents and labs appeared in numerous reports throughout the throughout 2000 2001 leading to Colin Powell's speech uh, however his credibility and background raised concern and his flaws in his story were identified by CIA technicians and weapons experts such as Margaret nonetheless these doubts were not adequately communicated to policymakers 
So it was a pretty unreliable source. Yeah. It was only after the invasion in Iraq that the investigation into his credibility began. It was discovered that he had ranked last in his university class, mm-hmm. despite his earlier claims of being a top student. Moreover, he had a history of embezzlement, and he had, and they found out that he had run away to Germany to, uh, to avoid imprisonment for embezzling money. The investigation commission initiated by George Bush in 2003 revealed that curveball handlers in Germany saw him as a mentally unstable and unreliable person, and his friends referred to him as a habitual liar. So it's like the worst of the worst. The worst of the worst. The Bush administration even faced criticism for ignoring evidence from the United what? from the UN weapons inspector that disproved his claims. Okay. So when the United Nations weapons inspector went back to Iraq before the war, they disproved his claims. Satellite photography and on-site inspections contradictions uh, contradicted his assertions, but these uh, dis- disparities were overlooked. The blame was placed on the CIA for failing to fairly investigate his credibility before even going out Absolutely, to the report. Yeah, but they rushed everything. Uh, George Tennant, his deputy, denied being warned about Kurt Ball's unreliability prior to this Powell speech. However, it's crucial to acknowledge that the CIA was under pressure, under pressure from the administration, so they kind of maybe felt like, listen, we just yeah, we'll needed just something. Whatever, yeah. yeah. So you can see how why this kind of fucked everything for... So in January 2003... Uh, prior to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, three ex- Iraqi expats, including someone named Kanan, Makaya, met with President Bush, Cheney, and Condoleezza Rice at the White House. The purpose of the meeting seemed to be a public relations exercise, and they would be the ones who would like give a positive reception in Iraq. You know, during the meeting, President Bush outlined his plan after the invasion, and mentioning the existence of two armies, one to topple the regime and another to rebuild Iraq. Mikaya noticed Rice's uncertainty when confirming the plan. This suspicion was confirmed when Mikaya met with Army General James J. Garner, who was responsible for post-war rebuilding. He was ill-prepared for the task and lacked resources and personnel. The planning for the post-war in Iraq by Bush was chaotic, with conflicting views among top officials. Colin Powell was skeptical of the invasion but did not explicitly oppose it, while Rumsfeld, the Department of Defense, was fully committed to the war. The State Department under Powell had the Future of Iraq project, but that was actually like the War Room Committee, but they yeah. just called the Future of Iraq. Of course. Welcome to the somewhat engorged session of the Future Planning Committee. Yes, Assistant Secretary, on point six, it feels like there's already been an assumption that we're invading. And uh, don't you think that we should discuss the practical implications? I mean, this is, after all, the War Committee. Uh, this is the Future Planning Committee. Well, unofficially, it is called the War Committee. Well, uh, Karen, unofficially, we can call anything whatever we want. Uh, but their influence was limited. When it came to practical work of rebuilding Iraq, the State Department's efforts was ineffective. Rumsfeld didn't even prioritize the humanitarian and reconstruction effort. He famously said, um, we don't do windows. Wow. Mm. Rumsfeld's focus was on efficiency and quick resolution. He didn't want to invest in long-term reconstruction and let or let others take over the role. He ensured that the Defense Department, rather than the State Department, will oversee the post-Saddam occupying forces. However, Rumsfeld's disinterest in post-invasion planning uh, created uh, provided difficulties in meetings. The lack of comprehens- comprehensive planning for maintaining law and order after invasion became evident when General Tom Franks stated that, that the U.S. military would handle the responsibility, despite the absence of any concrete plan. Yeah, so this was what was happening during the time where Colin Powell was... Uh, Doing his thing. Doing his thing. On February on February seventh, after the 
After Colin Powell's speech, the chief United Nations Army Inspector, Hans Bilx, acknowledged that the Iraqi Iraq appeared to be making fresh efforts to cooperate with the United Nations hunt, uh, team hunting for weapons of mass destruction, while the U.S. government insisted that this, the momentum is building for war in Iraq. A day later, on February 8th, as, uh, sections of the dodgy, dodgy dossier issued by the U.K. government came under criticism. The dossier, which had been cited by Tony Blair and Colin Powell as evidence for the need of war, was found to be contain plagiarized content from various sources. Um, the UK responded that they had never claimed exclusive authorship or that the information was presented was accurate. As tensions rose, uh, on February 9th, it was reported that 13% of the 3,300 uh, reservists called, the, called by the British government to prepare for Iraq had uh, attempted to avoid being drafted, drafted. So like even soldiers, British soldiers were trying to avoid the draft. February February 10th, France and Belgium broke the NATO procedure of signed approval uh, concerning protective measures over Turkey in case of a possible war in Iraq. Germany expressed its support for this veto. In response, Turkey invoked Article 4 of the NATO treaty, which calls for members to deliberate when asked to do so by another member state if it feels threatened. To do so by another member state if it feels threatened. So France and Belgium were like, listen, usually you have to have a signed approval if a NATO country goes to war. Mm -hmm. They, they went without No. They're like, we can't. Uh, we need to uh, talk about this. Um, Austria barred the U U.S. military units involved in the attack on Iraq from entering or flying over its territory. <laughs> on February 13th... They asked me to know exactly what you're going to be talking about. Yeah? This, this is catastrophic. But, uh, <laughs> this, this, this podcast also <laughs> cannot air. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you guys, stop that, man. <laughs> yeah. Wolf always doesn't want to be known. Yeah. <laughs> In February 13th, uh, Austria barred United U.S. military units involved in, that, involved in the attack on Iraq from entering and flying over its territories without United Nations mandate. Uh, simultaneously, the U.S. military confirmed anonymously that two special forces units have been operating on the ground inside Iraq for over a month. Uh, additionally, the United Nations panel reported that Iraq's Al-Samud um, two missiles have had a range exceeding the limit allowed by the United States. So they said, listen, we found two missiles that had uh, that were exceeding its range limit that we opposed on them, sparking a debate on whether they should be that breached UN resolution or not. So Americans were ready there, either way. On, fe on February 14th, on Valentine's Day, a massive demonstration took place in Melbourne, Australia, protesting against the Australian government support of the US policy in Iraq. Organizers estimated that 200,000 people demonstrated uh, against the war in Iraq. In the United in the United Nations in the United Nations, the weapon inspector Hans Belks and Mohammed Al Baradai presented a report on this to the Security Council. They stated that Iraq had been cooperating well with inspectors and no weapons of mass destruction have been found. However, they also emphasized that Iraq still need to account for some banned weapons they believed to be in their arsenal. Blake's questioned some of the conclusions presented by Colin Powell. Uh, Eleven days, uh, nine days earlier. He's like, uh, so we we're didn't. Not, we're not finding anything. Yeah. On February fifteenth, and this is the big one, six million people protested in over six hundred cities worldwide, making it the largest anti-war protest. Uh, ha like occurred protesting the invasion in Iraq. Um, Colin Powell on twenty fourth of February met in Beijing and started. It's stated it's time to take action against Iraq. February twenty fifth. Like all this leading mm -hmm. up, 
the United States, Britain, Spain presented a second resolution to the UN Security Council. This resolution stated that Iraq had fought, failed to disarm but did not include deadlines or an explicit military threat in response. France, Germany, and uh, Russia offered a counter-proposal to call for a peaceful disarmament through further inspections. Like, listen, this is peacefully yeah, disarmed no this country. For war. Fr- February 26th, uh, the UN's chief weapons inspector, Hans, stated that there was no evidence of Iraq possessing any WMDs, despite President Bush publicly discussing his vision of a post-invasion democracy in Iraq, uh, describing it an example for other nations in the region. So while the dude was like, on the same day, the dude was like saying there's no evidence, Bush was already pl- like planning, planning the victory. In the British House of Commons, a historic rebellion took place with 122 members of parliament from the ruling Labour Party voting to add the f- phrase find the case for military action against Iraq has yet uh, as yet unproven wow. uh, to the gov- to a government motion however the motion still supported the government's effort to disarm Iraq through the United Nations on sep- so it seems like everyone was fine with them entering Iraq but not for war not for war like listen we could find this, there's a peaceful Saddam solution had the dodgy history yeah on February 27th the Spanish Prime Minister Jose Maria Aznar asked President Bush to silence the Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld as Rumsfeld's public remarks on European countries' Iraq policies were viewed as inflammatory within, uh, within the European diplomatic community. He expressed a preference to, this, to Colin Powell's approach. He's like, let Colin Powell talk. Don't let Rumsfeld talk about Europe because you're not going to get any support from Europe. The Chief Weapons Inspector Hans acknowledged limited progress in Iraq's disarmament efforts and... Um, and on February 28th, Iraq started to destroy its, missile, its Al-Samud missiles too. Uh, a significant step in the disarmament. Okay, so they were compromised. Uh, the White House dismissed this as fraud, insisted it was, it's, it insisted on it has to be complete disarmament or no. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister John Chrétien expressed concern about the regime change and emphasized... Uh, the, internal, the international pressure should focus on disarmament rather than pursuing a more dangerous goal. A revelation was made during that time that in Britain that Margaret Thatcher had given $1 billion of taxpayer money to Iraq in 1980, funding the military, ext- uh, and most of the funding went into military infrastructure, by the way, the one they're trying to disarm. Was, was, uh, they found £1 billion being given by Margaret Thatcher. As March began, now you're on the precipice of the... Invasion. Uh, it's, uh, tensions began to escalate. On March 1st, the United Arab of Emirates, Bahrain, and Kuwait called for Saddam to step down. They like, stepped down to avoid the war. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Turkish Speaker of Parliament voided a vote accepting U.S. troops into Turkey on constitutional grounds and jeopardizing the U.S. plan for invasion. The like, U.S. cannot go through Turkey. Nice. Under U.S. supervision, Iraq began destroying all its missiles, aiming to demonstrate compliance. However, the U.S. dismissed these actions as deceptive games. <laughs> On March 3rd, it was my birthday. Okay, March 4th. <laughs> <laughs> March 3rd, under intense American pressure, the Turkey indicated that its parliament would consider a second vote to allow U.S. troops in. This is, uh, by the way, I want to bring something later, like a FYI, uh, about the co- countries that joined the war. This was called the Coalition of the Willing. It was later revealed that all of them were either bribed or threatened to vote. Interesting, okay. Uh, uh, as the world watched... Uh, the foreign ministers of France, Germany, and Russia indicated their opposition to any UN Security Council authorizing a proposal authorizing war. Meanwhile, the United Nations secretly left, drafted a plan for a post-war government in, in Iraq should the war take place. UN is always useless. Yeah. Um, 
Again, protests and demonstrations erupted globally again with students going on strike and citizens taking Iraqi citizens taking the streets protesting the war. On March 9th, Claire Short, a member of Tony Blair's cabinet, cabinet voided, uh, voiced her concern about Tony Blair's stance on Iraq. In an interview on BBC Radio 4, she described his position as deeply, deeply reckless and stated that she would resign if the UK committed to this war uh, without a clear mandate from the United Nations. Um, Saddam Hussein, uh, on that, the same day, uh, demanded several conditions from the UN security. He said, lift all the embargoes from Iraq. He denounced the United States and United Kingdom as liars and demanded that Israel to be stripped, to be stripped of its weapons of mass destruction. And to be yeah, let's not forget, Israel has all of them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Albania announced its intention to send troops to join the war effort in Iraq. This move was seen as a show of gratitude towards, um, towards the United States for the 1999 Bosnia Kosovo mm. War. March 10th, the, uh, the, the White House press secretary speaking on behalf of President Bush made a statement regarding the United Nations. He said, if the United Nations fails to act, that means the United Nations will not be the international body that disarms Saddam Hussein. Another international body will disarm Saddam Hussein. Hmm. Kofi Annan, the general secretary of the United Nations, responded by saying if the United States and others were to take military action outside the Security Council, it will not be, it will not be in the conformity of the UN Charter. Jacques Chirac declared that France would veto the UN resolution sponsored by Spain, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The resolution would have authorized the use of force in Iraq unless Iraq proved this disarmament by March 17th. So literally, it's like, we give Iraq to seven days to disarm all its weapons. Russia also said that it would veto the US and UK uh, resolution. And uh, in a significant development, U.S. diplomat John Brown resigned from the State Department. He cited disagreement with the Bush administration's Iraq policy, wow. expressing concern that it would fuel an anti-U.S. sentiment worldwide. March 11th, Iraqis fighters uh, threatened two U.S. Uh, U-2 surveillance planes were conducting missions for the United Nations. The planes were forced to abort their mission and return to base. No, sorry. March 12, Tony Blair proposed an amendment to the possible 18th UN resolution. The amendment called for Iraq to meet certain benchmarks to demonstrate its disarmament. However, France rejected the amendment immediately and vowed to veto any new resolutions. The key documents presented as evidence for the invasion in Iraq were were all revealed to be forgeries. These documents claimed that Niger was selling 500 tons of uranium to Iraq. However, their their authenticity came into question as one document was on stationery from 1980s military government, referring to a long gone foreign minister. Another document, very old stuff. Yeah, another foreign, uh, another document featured an obvious fake signature of the president of Niger. Senator John Rockefeller requested an FBI investigation into these documents, expressing concerns about a larger deception campaign to manipulate the public opinion. If these are all fixed, then what else is fake, right? Yep. March 15th witnessed a round of protests against the war in Iraq from cities around the world. Leader, on March 16th, America, Britain, Portugal, Spain convened in Azores Island on March 16th. Uh, Bush referred that Monday, March 17th, would be the moment of truth, indicating the coalition of the willing would make a final effort to obtain a United Nations Security Council resolution that would give Iraq an ultimatum to disarm immediately or face a, full, a forceful disarmament. On the same day, the whole world there was a worldwide virtual uh, vigil uh, as a part of a public protest. March seventeenth, 
they would change the course of history forever. George Bush sat in front of his desk and demanded Saddam Hussein to relinquish his powers in 48 hours. And when he didn't comply, the United States initiated an invasion in Iraq. Within 48 hours, a small coalition of Great Britain, Australia, joined the U.S. in this military campaign. President Bush's primary objective was to protect the American people, apparently, and their allies from the threat of an outlaw regime by deploying a collective strength of Army, Air Force, Navy, Coast, Coast Guard, and Marines. The aim was to confront uh, the danger head-on and to prevent the need for emergency response personnel like firefighters, police, and doctors on the American streets. On April 9th, after the war, Rumsfeld said that Baghdad had fallen. However, the city was engulfed in chaos. Looting became rampant. The National Museum and the National Museum, was, which held invaluable artifacts, fell victim to unrest. People were stealing everything. I remember, you remember the... I remember the videos, yeah. Yeah, Pentagon officials justified the delay in acting by prioritizing the security of critical locations. Um, yeah, so... So what happened? In early May, George Bush and Rumsfeld made the decision to replace General Jay Garner with Paul Bermer to oversee the reconstruction of Iraq. Uh, this is like debathization or debathification of Iraq. This kind of left Iraq lawless. And this is pretty much the start of the Iraq war. The thing is with the Iraq war, of course, Ahmed Chalabi would use this as a moment because he thought that he would become the next president of Iraq. And that was his intention all along. We know that the once the Iraq fell and once Saddam was captured and once the Ba'ath Party was uh, left and the army was disbanded, this kind of put Iraq in civil war yep. against each other. Yeah, I remember that. Um, there was clashes between the Sunnah, the Shia and the Kurds. Mm -hmm. And this led to the rise of militant groups in nice. Iraq, they, there was a democratic vote, but it had the lowest turnout in history. I remember that. In 2003, people were just disillusioned, man. Uh, on May 1st, George Bush, in front of the TV, dressed in what could be like Top Gun-esque. Uh, mm -hmm. he, uh, land, he landed on an aircraft carrier that seemed to be in the middle of the Pacific. However, it was just 40 miles off the coast of San Diego. And with a banner behind him that claimed... Mission accomplished. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, he delivered a speech declaring victory against terrorism and the removal of an ally of Al-Qaeda and the creator of weapons of mass destruction. The Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. The performance received widespread praise from TV pundits, some liking Bush to heroic figures from movies. However, amidst the theatrics, it's important to recognize that the Iraq war was ultimately Bush's decision. He could have easily said, listen, there's no link, let's just put it to rest. Yep. Although perceptions of him being detached or a mere puppet do exist, a lot of people think that he was just a puppet. That's no, all of them. He held the reins of power and took credit for the war. He said, it's my war. The planning and the execution of the war showcased his leadership, despite the presence of dissenting voices within his administration. The lack of direct challenges or open disagreements can be attributed to the atmosphere Bush fostered where disagreement was always discouraged. 2000, July 2003, Paul Burma attempted to kickstart Iraq's democracy with the Iraqi, Iraqi governing council. However, the council's composition focused more on representing sectarian and ethnic pro, uh, proportions rather than actually picking qualified leaders. And that's, uh, like I said, we won't go into the war of Iraq, but we could talk about its impact. Consequences, of course, disbanding the military, removing Sunni bureaucrats, and then that just kind of caused chaos because where does the country go from there, right? Yeah. Like, there was no debate, there was no discussion about the administration, clearly. Like, one thing I was surprised was that, like, there was barely any discussion against the war. It was just, listen, we have a timeline. We can't have an intellectual debate on whether or not we should go to war. Yeah, let's get it done with. 
the the conclu- you know it's like the conclusion was already derived you know like we how to get there how to get there possible. yeah another thing was that iraq still con- grapples with political instability no there's no participation from the masses and there was and of course 2001 there was a financial collapse that happened in iraq of course we can't not not discuss daesh yeah that was a result of isis of a lack of um military in iraq the word is that saddam kept all these guys at, at bay, bay yeah they're biding their time so um, so the reality of the war is that i'd say the biggest thing one of the biggest thing mm-hmm. that came out of all this is that americans never trusted the government again yeah it led to the whole whether it's maga or the left but i don't think americans have ever trusted the government since and everything's been a conspiracy theory ever since ever since then i mean there's always been moon landing stuff and all that but i feel like all those stuff iraq war justified the lies became popular and until now uh the trump guys who don't trust the government yeah the sanders people who don't trust the government all that stuff came from iraq war because that was like legit showed how the government can lie just so a quick I, note. i also think that's a big thing that happened for the death toll so we know that the iraq war con- considered a resulted in substantial death destabilization the middle east has never been the same since the iraq war mm-hmm. but before we get to that so it's estimated that 400,000 iraqis had died uh, during the eight year war 400 4,400 americans lost their lives on baseless claims and millions of iraqis uh, were internally displaced I would like to think that maybe also the Arab Spring was a result of the geopolitical absolutely uh, effect of war. Uh I think the need of looking for another superpower um besides America kind of was a result of Iraq war like we said. I think America I think the Iraq war has made America in the eyes of other nations the idea of homelander from the boys yeah. was a result of uh Iraq war. war. Like, American politics to this day is post Iraq war. Yeah. So yeah, so that's the effect, the tragic effect of war. Um and on a personal note, we had a lot of army yeah, <laughs> army personnel in the schools. In the Middle East, we grew up around the military quite often. Yeah. So um this was part 4 of the Iraq of Iraq saga. Now that you know the whole story and how Iraq was I guess from the get constantly it was, it was doomed. doomed. I don't know if there was any moment of stability in Iraq. They've never known. And it's crazy to think like that yeah, that Iraq has always been a a crucial point for a lot of foreign countries. Yeah, it was always uh the proxy. Yeah. which became Syria now. And the day and the time it did actually get some sort of independence, it got plunged into two wars. Yeah. That was unnecessary, like which kind Canadian, of spelled the yeah. spelled the doom of um Iraq as a country. Now question arises had Saddam not joined the war in Iran then he wouldn't have gone into had Iraq had he just played with Americans and been their puppet yeah a lot of ways around it yeah um, had he actually stepped down in 95 or after the Gulf War yeah just had an American puppet milk them from oil and avoid the war yeah who yeah, knows there was a lot of things um, but yeah that state, yeah so, no, no one was right in all of it yeah not one person was good yeah but uh, so that was our part four of the Iraq saga and we're finally done with Iraq. I hope you gave it justice and we understood like the convoluted and complex nature of the Iraq war and how this was actually 100 years in the making almost. Um 
Yeah, and 20 years on, I think Iraq is, I don't know, I can't see it go back to a normal state. Like every time I see on the news, I can't. Iraq has finally known some sort of peace. But. But it's still pretty damaged. It's very damaged. And I don't know how America, um, America, I don't know how it will come back from it. A war that cost him a trillion, over a trillion dollars. America has never recovered from it, both as a... uh, not only financially, but also as a political identity. Uh, that person who resigned, who said that uh, it's going to ruin American perception. The this the speak yeah. America has never been the good guy since in terms of world politics. Yeah, not in front of Americans. Like this is coming from someone who's seen America from the other lens. Mm. No Arab nation thinks America's good. No European nation thinks America's good. Mm-hmm. No African nation thinks America's good. This was maybe only Israel. Uh, in terms of the, like other country, but and maybe England, I don't know. But it, no. it fucked Tony Blair's career. I mean, yeah, but not the so. Labour Party got destroyed by it. But America has never been good, the good guy ever since. A hundred percent. It's up there with Russia's invasion with Ukraine. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing. The thing is, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is literally like America was Putin twenty years ago. Yeah, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. like an unjustified war based on a baseless claim. So that's where we're gonna sign off today. Uh, for next time. We'll try to do something light. I was thinking um, something easy and light. We might focus on the history of the Israel and Palestine conflict. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, I don't know. We'll try to figure something out, something fun. Maybe we'll do something about some media, some movie influence. Yeah. We'll talk about the impact of Mission Impossible. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, TikTok, Insta. All, all of it is in the show notes. Uh, I'll leave you some articles to read that benefited me. Thank you guys again. Have a good night. Take Take care, care, guys. And the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. (laughs) Iraq. Anyway. uh,